0: Good to see you. Uh, My name is Pastor Trent for some of you who don't know me, uh, but I'm excited to be bringing the word this morning. You'll notice that we're not going to be in Nehemiah, so you can go ahead and get your Bible out and open it up to the book of Luke chapter 4. We're going to take a week break from our Nehemiah series. Uh, Next week we'll be back in Nehemiah in chapter 5, but this morning we'll be in Luke chapter 4 and we'll be in verses 31 through 41. You can go ahead and find your way there as I kind of begin what we're going to be talking about. Most of you know this past week that our fall discipleship began uh, this past Wednesday night, which, meant, uh, which means that our Awana classes started back. Uh, our student ministry has been going all summer long, and uh, we had some new classes uh, begin in our fall discipleship. So if you are looking for a class, there's three options. You can uh, Uh, If you're an adult, you can join our Meeting with God class with uh, Mr. Chris Height. Uh, You can uh, be in that class. He's going to kind of teach what it looks like to have a personal quiet time with the Lord. Uh, You can uh, be in our Art of Parenting class uh, with Mr. Bill Lang as he teaches uh, what parenting should look like and how we should raise uh, uh, godly uh, sons and daughters And then lastly, you can uh, join uh, our class on spiritual disciplines, uh, led well um, by uh, uh, Pastor Bob and filled in this past uh, week by George Calderon. So I hope you will join one of those. But in light of the third class called Battle Lines, specifically geared toward spiritual warfare in the New Testament church, with that in mind, I wanted to turn our attention to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verses 31 through 41. So I'm going to set up the message, kind of give you a little bit of an idea of where we're going. But I want to ask a question. Um, And you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you have seen one of the 23 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies? You don't have to raise your hand. One of the 23, at least, Marvel. You can. Uh, One of the 23 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies. My wife and I seem to try to catch Uh, every new movie when it comes out. We're not like super fans of Marvel, um, but when they come out on Disney+, Plus or when they come out on Netflix, or whatever streaming platform they come out on that we have, we might try to check them out. But if you're familiar in any way with these movies, the Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, you know three things to be true about every single one of them, pretty much every single one of them. Three things to be true. The first is this. Another one will be coming, Right? They want to make money, there's going to be a new Marvel movie. We had the biggest battle of the universe in the last Avengers movie. I don't know what it was called, but there's going to be another movie because there's more money to be made, right? There'll be another movie. There's another villain or something like that. That's number one. Number two is that each movie, in each movie, there will be a large cinematic battle of good versus evil. Every movie. Large cinematic epic battle of good versus evil evil. And the third is this, and most importantly, while it may seem as if evil has been ultimately defeated in the movie at the conclusion of its storyline, there will most often be a brief clip after the ending credits that will show that evil in fact was not eradicated, that there was a mistake made. That a hero maybe wasn't powerful enough, and that the villain not only still exists but has a plan. We call those what? Post-credit scenes, right? You thought it was over, but everybody stays back in the theater because it's Marvel and they gotta have another make another movie, right? And evil was in fact not defeated entirely. Now, all of these three elements, especially the last, are essential. Always good, always evil, always in constant war with one another. There's always another movie coming, and even at the end of the biggest movies, there's a post-credit scene proving that the battle is not over. Now, I called up a friend of mine named Landon that I grew up with, and he is a Marvel, can I say fanatic? He really likes the Marvel movies. And he informed me that among the 23 Marvel Cinematic Universe movies, there are 39 post-credit scenes. Kind of interesting. Interesting. Now, maybe you ask, okay, why is any of this important? Well, in the text that we're going to be in this morning, we're going to find that there will be no eternal dualistic battle for the universe that will be ongoing. We have a conclusion to our biblical story. The Bible records for us in its conclusion a joyous end of the presence and power of evil as Christ, once and for all, will defeat death, Satan, and demonic oppression. So there will, forever, there will not forever be a pull back and forth between good and evil. There will be no post-credit scene where evil will somehow come back in the end after the book of Revelation to wage yet another war again like there's another movie coming out. Jesus will decisively eradicate the existence of evil for his people one day, and in his ministry on earth 2,000 years ago, we see that proven, and we have assurance of that reality. So, here's what we're going to talk about this morning. The ministry of Jesus proves the final victory of Jesus, and gives assurance to the people of God, and even the demons acknowledge it. Even the demons acknowledge the final victory of Jesus. That what we see in our text is that, yes, evil, demonic presence is real in our world, and disease exists in our fallen world, but both will one day be totally defeated by the one who has, and who has shown his universal authority on earth. Now, why preach this message this day? I'm glad you asked, right? Let me give you two reasons. Our current election season, and the global spread of the coronavirus. Now you say, Trent, you're not Pastor Bob. This is two really unique topics here that are not divisive at all but whatever you believe about the details of both of those things we can agree that those two things both the election season that we find ourselves in and our current cultural moment with the coronavirus have shown us online anger frustration and conversation weariness And in some cases, even our own battle with mental, emotional, and physical health. Now, let me tell you why I think a message on the authority of Christ is so important in this moment. First, concerning the virus. Now, I'll just be honest. I'm not sure, nor can I say, whether this virus is a direct result of the wrath of God. A sort of end times plague reminding us that the, that the r- return of Christ is near, or simply another effect of the fall in our sinful world. But I can assure you, while it will and has shaken us up in many ways, it is not in any way shaken up the Lord. In fact, there's no ability this virus has above or beyond the authority of Christ. None. And, and we can look forward to, and we ought to look forward to, to the day when d- diseases will be no more. And in the text that we're going to be in, we're going to see that he has authority over diseases, various diseases. And by his voice, he can just stop them. Gives us assurance of the fact that yeah, what he talks about in the future when the the, the perishable will inherit the imperishable that our mortal bodies will put on immortality. Yeah, he can actually do that. He has the authority. Second, regarding the election. Now everybody's really listening now, right? We would do well to remember five things. The fifth being the important one for today's message. The first is that God appoints all positions of power and can remove any person at any moment. We see that in the book of Daniel. He talks to Nebuchadnezzar and says, until you recognize that I am the Lord God, you will be cast away for seven periods of time. And that's exactly what he does. Until you recognize that I put the kings into their positions. And I can remove them like that. The second being that the people of God are to pray for every leader, no matter who they are, even for their salvation. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul writes to Timothy and he encourages him to pray for the leaders in power. And you know who was in power at that moment? Nero. You know what Nero is known for? Burning Christians to light his garden. Third, Our battle is not against flesh and blood and our sword is not our biting anger, but is the piercing truth of God's word. Ephesians chapter 6. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers that exist in the spiritual realms. Number four, as God's people, our trust is not ultimately in chariots and horses The money that we have at any particular moment as a society. But as the people of God, our trust is in the name of the Lord our God. This is Psalm 27. We do not trust in chariots and horses. We trust in the name of the Lord our God. And lastly, and most importantly for our text this morning, the Bible teaches us that like Daniel, we are truly exiles in this land with a hope for an even greater home the new jerusalem you think to daniel as he's told not to pray what does he go do <laughs> he goes and prays right but he goes and prays eyes fixed toward jerusalem within his mind the promises of god that in 70 years he will restore their land and they'll go back he has his eyes fixed on the promises of god as an exile in babylon and as exiles today as first peter tells us we have our minds set on the return of christ trusting the promises of god So no matter what may happen, disease that may come, decision that may come, we have a God who is above all, and he is totally powerful, in total control, even when it seems like the world is spinning away. We must remember this in the midst of any issue, any pandemic, any argument, and in the heat of any moment. We have a hope that exists beyond this pandemic, no matter its toll, and beyond this election, no matter if our necessary stewardship doesn't reach its particular end. The home we hope for will be one without demonic oppression and one without disease. It will be one without the stain of sin, sickness, sorrow, and strife, and we can look forward to that forever home with assurance. When we look to Jesus, like we will together this morning and see his universal authority. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray you teach us in it this morning. Help us to see your splendor and your sovereign power. And help us to gain confidence in it. Lord, knowing that the hand that casts out demons The finger that pointed and plagues came about in Exodus is the same hand that holds us together. You hold us in your hand, and no one can remove us from your hand. As we're in your word, teach us, we pray. Amen. Luke 4, 31 through 41. Are you ready? Here we go. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? And he arose and he left the synagogue and he entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and he rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any, were, who, were, all those who, had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him and he had laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, you are the son of God. But he rebuked them and he would not allow them to speak because he knew or they knew that he was the Christ. So here's the outline this morning. I'm going to go ahead and give it to you and then we'll walk through it together. Simple outline. First is this, what do we see? It's a question we ought to ask. Number two, what do we hear? Second question we ought to ask. And third, what do we know? To be true from this verse or what does it point us to in other passages of scripture that we know to be true what do we see what do we hear what do we know three simple questions in this story that we're going to ask so let's look at it together in this passage first and foremost we see the authority of jesus both in his work but also in his word Before we see his work, let's just speak about his word because that's the first thing in our passage that astonishes the audience. It's the first thing. Verse 31, second half of it says this. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. Jesus was in a local synagogue. He was traveling speaker. He came in and spoke and they were astonished at his teaching, verse 32, for his word possessed authority. So he hadn't healed anybody yet. He hadn't um, cast out a demon in Capernaum in the synagogue yet. But they were astonished by his teaching. So before he performed any miracles, they were taken aback by what? His teaching. His word possesses authority. Now, we see that that is not unique in the scriptures. Jesus' word absolutely carries authority. Colossians 1 tells us that Jesus is the same God who created all things. And how was the world created? By a thousand years of work? Or by the powerful word of God? Well, by the word of God, was it not? In Psalm 33, 6, says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and the breadth of his mouth, and all their hosts. Genesis 1, And the Lord said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God said, Let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, and there was. And God said, let there be, and there was. So think about this for a moment. When the people of Capernaum were hearing Jesus speak, they were hearing the same voice that put the stars in their place. This word possesses authority. It's unlike anything they'd ever heard before. Can you imagine being there? same God who said let there be lights <laughs> let there be light is the God they're hearing that day but not only does his word possess authority we see specifically in this passage that he has authority over both demons and diseases let's start with demons verse 33 in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon and he cried out with a loud voice what have you to do with us Jesus of Nazareth have you come to destroy us I know you are the holy one of God but Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. They were all amazed. They said to one another, What is this word? For with authority he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. Later on in verse 41, you see that demons came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God. He rebuked them. He wouldn't allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Christ. So let's start at the first situation. Sorry, at the beginning of verse 33. 33. You see that Jesus walks into a synagogue, teaches in front of all the people, and there's a man with the spirit of a demon. And where's he at? Well, he's in quote-unquote church, and the demon just starts screaming. Okay, we have security or safety detail in this room. If you stand up and start screaming, not only will I be confused, but they might escort you out of the room, right? Who, uh, no matter who you are, this is a terrifying situation. The religious elite in the room most likely would have expected because of his uncleanliness, hence the word unclean, and my thoughts are like, is there anything other than an unclean demon? I don't think there's a clean demon, but it says unclean, right, specifically pointing out that he's unclean. They thought that most likely Jesus would remove the man because of his uncleanliness, but instead, what does Jesus do? He removes the demon from the man. Who can do that? Jesus. At his rebuke, there's three things I want you to see. They can't disobey, they can't speak, and they can't hurt. At his rebuke, three things you see in this passage. They can't disobey, they can't speak, and they can't hurt. Verse 35, be silent and come out of him. And what does he do? He came out of him. Jesus' authority can't be challenged or ignored. He speaks, demons obey. Come out, okay, I'm out. The demon didn't put up a fight because there's no fight to be put up. Jesus speaks with authority. They can't disobey. At his rebuke, they can't speak. Verse 41, he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak. So there's no dualistic wrestling for the battle of the universe here, no wrestling for power here. Jesus says be quiet, and they're quiet. There isn't a consequence even given if they're not quiet. Quiet. Like, if I told Judah, my son, two-and-a-half-year-old son, not to talk, and I gave him consequences, if he didn't listen, that would imply that he has some certain uh, level of control under my command, right? Because consequences imply control. Consequences, by definition, imply that there's some level of control or possibility to act in co- contrary to a command, No consequences, only a command he controls. They listen. They can't speak. Not only that, at his rebuke, they can't hurt. Verse 35, when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him. And why does Luke add, having done him no harm? Well, the demon who had left uh, and had been commanded to do so out of the man had tried to at least leave a mark on the man by throwing him down, but because of God's authority, he couldn't even accomplish that. One commentator, when it comes to Jesus' um, approach and interaction with demonic oppression and demon, uh, demons, left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. There was no recovery. She just got back up and started serving. Now, fevers don't have ears or minds, and yet Jesus rebukes the fever, and it leaves. This is wild. This, this isn't, by the way, like any sort of fraud that you might see with faith healers today. They weren't set up. In, in fact, you see later in the passage that there's many people coming to him, like so many so, um, with various diseases, and he heals them all. I think we're good. I think we're good. And he heals them all. It wasn't as if he had pre-selected certain individuals and found out by his buddies what they had so that they could come walk on a stage, but it wouldn't be too bad of a disease. It would be just enough of a disease where they could go ahead and walk just for a little bit and he could get the glory. Rather, he healed all these different individuals with various diseases. No illness is stronger than the ultimate physician. And sincere thankfulness led Simon's mother-in-law to start serving them. When you pray to God often about different individuals in your life that are undergoing specific and serious treatments, you can rest assured that if God's desire is to heal that individual, he can most certainly do that. He is able. Now let me just pause here for a moment because I think it would be good for me to do so. That does not mean that in every case, Jesus will heal or God will heal. And we may not have an immediate answer for why or why he won't heal a certain individual or in a certain moment in time. Even if we're asking in faith and trust that he can heal. Because we see Jesus' ultimate priority in his life and in his ministry follows this passage of scripture in verses 42 through 44 where he leaves the place where more could have gotten healed so that he can speak about the kingdom of God, the gospel itself, so that people are not only physically healed temporarily, but eternally healed from the, uh, the punishment of their sin. So we see his authority, but don't miss his priority in verses 42 through 44. I just want to say that word. Now what do we hear? Because that's also important. We got what do we see, that's number one, but what do we hear? What we saw was the authority of Jesus over demons and disease. What we hear is the demons' recognition of Jesus' person and power. Now this is where it gets really interesting. Really interesting. Now it might be good for me just to say for a moment who demons are. The first this is the first time they're introduced in the Gospel of Luke, and they're in opposition to Christ. And Jesus has shown his righteousness and personal personal temptation from the devil, and now he comes to show his authority over demonic oppression in his public ministry. Let me say that again: Jesus has already shown in the Gospel of Luke in his personal temptation from the devil. His righteousness, and now he comes to show his authority over demonic oppression in his public ministry. And demons are angels who, under the leadership of Satan, have rebelled against God and who, under the authority of God, were thrown out of heaven. The rebellion and subsequent fall can be seen in Isaiah and Ezekiel and in in, in Scripture. But what did demons know? Who were demons. We got that. What did demons know? Well, demons know quite a bit, more than you would think. In fact, The text of scripture that we're in is pretty fascinating because of what the demons clearly know. During the life and ministry of Jesus, there seems to be a whole lot of confusion with a lot of people who Jesus is and what exactly he came to do. During the life and ministry of Jesus, there seems to be a lot of confusion about who Jesus is and what he came to do. There are times when his family thinks he's crazy, Mark chapter 3 and John 7. There are times when religious leaders think he's possessed by Satan, Mark chapter 3. Even disciples were often confused about his plan in John 13. The only ones who seem to consistently get it right about who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do were demons. Isn't that interesting? They're in no way confused when it comes to who Jesus is. Let, let me just show you something really unique for a minute. If, you just, if you're in Luke chapter 4, you can kind of maybe turn your page and look to the beginning of chapter 4. I think it begins in verse uh, 14, if I'm not mistaken, maybe 15, I can't remember, where Jesus uh, begins his ministry uh, or, 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 or speaks to his hometown in Nazareth. Doesn't necessarily begin his ministry. Speaks to his hometown in Nazareth. And in that moment after Jesus opened the school of Isaiah and spoke, about who he was and what he came to do, his own hometown tried to kill him. I mean, he was the well-known hometown preacher coming back and speaking, and they heard him, and they tried to kill him because of what he said and based on who he clearly showed himself to be. So in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth, former friendly supporters deny his person and yet in our passage at Capernaum, demons who have been in forever opposition to God and to his plan declare his person. The people in Nazareth attempt to stone him, and yet this week demons are scared of him. In Nazareth, people desire Jesus for his power but denied his person. In Capernaum, the demons experience his power and exclaim his person. The demons who have no saving relationship with Jesus, yet they totally understand Jesus' relationship to God. So let me say this again, because this is what we're going to see. As Jesus displays his power, the demons declare his person. There are four things they acknowledge about Jesus. Four things. I want you to potentially, if you're a note taker, write these down. Four things. Four things demons acknowledge about Jesus. They know he's holy. Verse 34 says, Ha, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? This is the demon speaking. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. What does he say? The Holy One of God. Though the statement speaks clearly more to Jesus' holiness. When the demon screams, You are the Holy One of God, he is commenting on his righteousness, his goodness, his justice, and his purity. He is saying, and In effect, there is no one like him. Now, even though the demon hates God, he cannot say he's not holy. There's no desire for his goodness, but there's no denial of it either. They know he's holy. Verse 41, they know he's the son of God. Verse 41, it says, demons came out of many crying, you are the son of God. The demons understand what so many do not understand. They believe in the Trinitarian God. They recognize Jesus as the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God. Jesus' baptism in Luke 3, we've seen this to be true, that Jesus is the Son of God as God declares it from heaven. And now we hear it in Luke 4, out of the mouth of a demon who knows it to be true. When they see Jesus, they see the eternal God who came to earth to accomplish our salvation. The only difference is they hate it. The third thing First, they know he's holy. They know he's the Son of God. The third, they know he's the Christ. Verse 41 again, in the second half, he says, but he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Well, what does that mean? Well, Christ, as is often said, is not the last name of Jesus. Rather, it's a title for who Jesus was. He's the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the long-awaited promised one of God, seen as early as Genesis 3.15, where you would see that there would be one coming from woman who would crush the head of the serpent. In other words... They knew that this is the anointed one of God, promised to send, uh, God that God promised to send to be the savior of his people, that Jesus is the one the Old Testament had been speaking about and pointing toward, the long-predicted, long-awaited, the anointed one above all others. All the promises of God are fulfilled in him, the final anointed king, prophet, and priest, reigning on David's throne forever, his words being God's words, and through whom men and women have access to God, fulfilling all the hopes and dreams of those who have trusted in and those who trust in the promises of God. The demon knows. The demon knows. Now the fourth and final thing that's so important for our message is the fourth thing that the demon acknowledges. Not only do they know he's holy, no desire for his goodness, there's no denial of it. Even though he hates God, he can't say that he's not holy. They know he's the son of God. The trini- they know God is a triune God. God. Jesus is in fact the eternal son of God. They know he's the Christ, the one who fulfills the hopes and dreams of those who've trusted in and trust in the promises of God. Here's lastly, they know they will be destroyed. Verse 34, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Nazareth. Have you come to destroy us? Matthew 8, the same story of the pigs that Jesus sends the demons into, says this, Behold, they cried out, that is the demons possessing the two men, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know there is a point time where God will in fact have decisive victory defeating all his enemies, making them a footstool under his feet. And they're asking us at the time. Upon encountering Jesus, demons are fearful because they know they don't stand a chance. They're completely aware of the person of God. They're completely aware of the power of God. And they're completely aware of the punishment that will come from God. Completely aware of the person, power, and punishment from God that will soon come. And if the demons know that, hear me, we ought to know it too. Personally, in our own lives, despite difficulty, despite disease, despite disparity over what is going on across our nation and across the world, we know the one who is above it all, who reigns on his throne, who is not surprised by anything, who can speak with authority and demons run, who can speak to disease and get rid of it in a moment, who there will be no contest against in the final day of his return and who can, we can have assurance in that moment because of what he has already displayed in his ministry. We have in the Gospels a picture of what Jesus can do and ultimately what he will do, and it should give us confidence in the present because our future is very bright because our king is still on his throne. Number three, what do we know? Well, exactly what I've said, but in a different way. Jesus' present authority gives us assurance of our final victory. We know that Jesus' present authority gives us assurance of our final victory. When Jesus ascended to heaven, actually right before he ascended to heaven, when he spoke to his disciples and others that were gathered, what did he say? All authority has been given to me. Go therefore. So it is with that confidence we go forward. All authority. And this authority that we see in the ministry of Jesus and we know exists as Jesus remains on the throne, let me give you two things as we close. Gives a foretaste of future glory. Jesus' authority gives us a foretaste of future glory and the assurance of demonic defeat. A foretaste of future glory and the assurance of demonic defeat. Let's look at both of those. A foretaste of future glory and assurance of demonic defeat. First off, as we mentioned at the beginning, his authority gives us a foretaste of future glory because in seeing his power to Dispel diseases, we can see a glimpse of the day where there will be no more COVID, no more cancer, no more cardiovascular problems, a day with no more asthma, arthritis, or Alzheimer's disease, a day where God will resurrect our bodies anew without any physical effects of the fall remaining, when we inherit the imperishable bodies that God has for us at our resurrection. And we can long for that day. We can look forward to that day, knowing that God can and will do exactly that, because as his word has authority, so in his word he is put the fact that he will do that and we can trust it the second not only do we have a foretaste of future glory but we have assurance of demonic defeat his authority gives us assurance that he will be able to defeat all of his and our enemies he debilitated them with his communication in this passage he disarmed them at the cross in colossians chapter 2 and he will defeat them at his second coming revelation 20. In fact, Jesus' ministry against demonic oppression is sort of like a teaser trailer. But a teaser trailer that gives the spoiler. You ever seen a teaser trailer about a movie that you want to see? Oh, it just gives you enough. We have a teaser trailer that reveals the spoiler. Just like when you see, like in the Avengers, oh, this is what's coming. We have in Jesus' ministry what he can do and who he is and what authority he has. This is no, hopefully, justice and righteousness will prevail. No. Jesus, is, Jesus shows his authority over, and power over demonic forces and diseases. And because of that, there is no contest. None. God isn't a hopeful champion, he is in fact the champion. The ministry of Jesus shows his power and the cross of Jesus secured his people. We have in Jesus' ministry, as I mentioned, a a glimpse like a teaser trailer of what Jesus will ultimately do once he eradicates spiritual evil once and for all and eliminates any physical effects of the fall. Demons, yes, and the devil himself, yes, are enemies of God, but let me tell you something real fast. Five things, they shudder in terror because of the knowledge of God, James two, they have been disarmed and put to public shame, Colossians two, they will be seized, Revelation 20, they will be squashed under the feet of saints, Romans 16, and they will ultimately suffer forever. Subjecting them under his control, Jesus shows that he will conquer them without any challenge and without any contest. In other words, Jesus has demons on a leash that he'll eventually hang from a tree. Jesus' present authority is our final victory.